Hello, and welcome to the Thinking Elixir podcast, where we cover the news of the community and learn from each other. My name is Mark Erickson. I'm Cade Ward. And I'm David Bernheisel. Let's jump into the news. First up, as a follow-up from our last episode, where we were talking about some of the new recent features added to Benchy, where reductions were featured, reductions being a beam feature that we were talking about and describing as a, a loose corollary to CPU load or units of work. Well, Jose shared his personal definition of a beam reduction as energy. Each process can only spend a certain amount of energy before it has to go to sleep. Function calls, expensive NIFs, etc., all spend varying amounts of energies. So I thought that was a fun definition, you know, not a scientific one, but it's like a, a good rule of thumb way of thinking about it. Yeah, and for you gamers out there, Carter Ruas on Twitter says that maybe uh, instead of energy, the word energy, just say mana, you know? It requires mana to, like, cast magic, and that's what Elixir is, you know? It's a little bit of magic out there. <laughs> that's nice. I like that. I'm going with mana. All right, PSA, if your Phoenix app cannot start on port 5000 on a newly upgraded Mac, for example, this is this only really applies to Mac, this could be because the AirPlay receiver is up and it's taking that 5000 port already. Thanks to Thibaut Barari. Sorry if I butchered it. Nice tip. Yeah, AirPlay receiver, that's like if you wanted to like cast something to your your computer, which I don't think is too common, but if you if you find yourself doing that, go check out your MacBook system preferences, go find your services there, and just uncheck AirPlay Receiver for a bit, or change the port that you start your dev server on. A new project was announced on the Dashbit blog by Philip Sampaio. It's a Rustler pre-compiled project. So if you're unfamiliar what that might mean, here's a little snippet from their blog post. Rustler was created a few years ago by Hans Elias J, and it's a project that aims to be a bridge between Rust and Elixir or Erlang. It makes it really easy to develop packages, but there are some challenges with actually using them. First, Rustler-based packages require the Rust toolchain to be compiled to native code. And secondly, we need to actually compile the native code which for some projects can be really time and resource consuming. So this is where the Rustler precompiler comes in. This shifts the work to the CI server where the binaries can be precompiled for different targets. And then the precompiled binaries can be downloaded and checked using checksums to prevent tampering. This means that the entire toolchain will not be needed where the project is being developed. And this also cuts out often expensive compile times for those libraries. That's pretty cool. I enjoy that. I think a little bit more caching is going to be good for the world because <laughs> that stuff's not changing, you know, once they're published. And they note in the blog post how you can, if you're concerned about any security issues and you want it to be compiled locally, you can totally do that as well. So it's not cutting that avenue off. I look forward to learning some more about that and seeing how that can help people going forward and, and maybe encouraging expanded use of Rust libraries in the Elixir ecosystem because the overhead will be less. You know, it, it won't be such a, a pain to say, hey, this is a really fast library that does this specific thing, and it happens to use Rust to help do the work. I'm sure they'll figure it out, but I, I know, you know, once once you're talking about pre-compiling stuff, you got to worry about different architectures. And so if you're developing on a Mac, that means you need the Mac one. But if you're preparing a release for a Linux server, you probably want the Linux, you know, pre-compiled binary there. And then on top of that, you probably got, you know, the Alpine Linux, which sometimes has, you know, different, different, anyway, it gets complicated, but I'm sure they'll figure it out. 
I'm also curious how this will uh, influence Zig, right? So this is talking about Rust, but there's plenty of C libraries out there too that could be interesting to have this kind of ecosystem around too, right? They just compile it from, from Zig and let those be served up. So that way you don't have to have the Zig compiler installed. Anyway, that, that's interesting. Also, uh, the updated NERVs systems have been released to Hex. We'll just cut some highlights here. Is it includes Erlang 24.3.2, a file system performance update for a bunch of <laughs> platforms, Raspberry Pi, BeagleBone Black, the Grisp 2, BeagleBone Green, Gateway and Blue, lots of little platforms out there. So that probably covers you if you're using NERVs and deploying somewhere. Go fetch you some NERVs system updates. Last up is... Just as a general web development concern. So a popular NPM package was maliciously updated by the maintainer as an act of protest. So we mention this because many of us here in the Elixir community, you know, we might be using Elixir on the back end, but we might still be using something like Vue or React or, or different things on the front end. So this particular one was impacting Vue.js. And if you've already hit this, you've no doubt dealt with it and you've moved on. So really, this is kind of more just to cover that it, it happened and talk about some of the implications of this. So it was from the SNYK security website. The issue was explained this way. On March 15th, 2022, users of the popular Vue.js front-end JavaScript framework started experiencing what can only be described as a supply chain attack impacting the NPM ecosystem. This was the result of nested dependencies, node IPC and peace not war being sabotaged as an act of protest by the maintainer of the node IPC package. The security incident involves destructive acts of corrupting files on disk by one maintainer and their attempts to hide and restate that deliberate sabotage in different forms. While this is an attack with a protest-driven motivation, it highlights a larger issue facing the software supply chain the transitive dependencies in your code can have a huge impact on your security. You can check out a link in the show notes if you want to go more in detail on what actually happened and the mitigations and things like that. But it just reminded me that in Elixir, we are not immune to the risks of transitive dependencies. You know, it's where I say, I want to bring in this library. I trust this person. They do good work, but they might have a dependency on something else. And I don't know anything about that particular person. And that's the transitive dependency part. In general, I think the Elixir community is somewhat averse to a massive use of other libraries. Oftentimes it's, hey, if I can do it quickly and easily myself, no reason to bring in a library to do it. And you just do it yourself. No, that's kind of the opposite of what you see in the NPM community, where you had such things as the famous left pad, where you had like this single function of like empty strings on the left of a string as an entire package. And then it gets deleted by the maintainer and causes a huge problem. We're not quite at the same level of using those kinds of dependencies, but still the risk exists. So have you guys thought about this? I know this has come up before in the NPM community a lot. It hasn't hit us in Elixir that I'm aware of, thankfully yet, but we're not immune to it. So like, what do you guys think about this? I have a couple thoughts. Like, all right, just to clarify a little bit more, like Vue, that, that's a huge framework, right? And and Vue uses this package. And so that's how I got introduced to the masses, I think, right? I don't know if this is completely accurate. Just reading the article, I think it was saying that it was also geolocating you. So it only activate if you're in certain areas and you can probably guess which area. So yeah, that's like very targeted. But coming back to the part where it's like, in this case, it was brought in by Vue. 
there's a lot of Elixir projects that rely on a framework. If you're nerves, you know, there's one of the one of the many nerves, you know, platform, you know, hex packages out there. If you're in Phoenix, there's a couple of like libraries that everyone's going to have like Cowboys one that comes to mind. Like if you're running a Phoenix server, you're running Cowboy as well. You don't necessarily interact with it in your code. You may not even know it's there. You know, you can get by without ever interacting with Cowboy. You'll see it in your logs, but that's as far as you have to really wonder before you get a working app. (laughs) This is one of those kind of things. Yeah, like we don't have the culture that NPM does necessarily. Like you said, like we, we tend to build it on our own and we don't tend to blast out a bunch of packages for small, you know, functional items. But that doesn't mean that we're not immune to it, like you said. I think in our lifetime, we'll see something like this in our Elixir and in, in the Elixir system. Uh, but I don't, I don't know when or where it's, it's, it's bound to happen. Yeah. It's a scary thought too, because it seems like you could do more damage on a server side application than a client side. I mean, I'm not aware of any like people, malicious people out there, but you know, as the, as any community gets you know larger, it's, it's going to happen. The thing is, is that it's not software. It doesn't matter that it's Elixir or NPM. It's people. And it's just NPM is just a lot of people. That's that's a lot of, you know, humans <laughs> with feelings and opinions. And I know that I'm an Elixir developer and, I, and I'm human and I have lots of feelings. If there's a way, you know, that, to, to spread your message, you know, do it. I, I understand how it could happen. I think what this is for me is a reminder that there are certain tools that we do have in the Elixir community that are worth bringing up again. And one of those is with the Hex PM website, you can diff on the website between different releases and review the code changes. Now, that's not something we tend to do as a general practice of every time we go and do an update. Now, when you're working in environments with security concerns and certifications and audits and things like that, that's much more likely to happen. But I, I think that's the minority of us. Yeah, but then you got to go do that on all of the dependencies of your dependency. <laughs> right, right. Which which I think is a reason to encourage us to reduce the total number of dependencies that we get. It's something to think about. I'm sure this is going to come up more in the future. We have one benefit, though, with, with Hex is it shipped from the beginning with a lock file. And as as long as you just do mix.get, devs.get, you're, you're always going to get those versions, right? That hasn't always been the case with NPM. Like it likes to upgrade on its own. That's been a surprising behavior. Unless you're running like NPM CI, which I don't know if, you know, people are in the in the practice of that. <laughs> and maybe that's what's biting some of these folks. And that's it for the news. Fly.io supports this podcast by providing editing services. Beyond being great for supporting us, they are a great place to host your next Elixir app. Check them out at fly.io. Today, we're being joined by our special guest, Mitch Hanberg. Mitch, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Well, Mitch, this is going to be fun because you've been involved with a project that, you know, it's one of those things that I would like to learn more about. And I think there are people out there who would love to hear about this as well. So you've been working on a templating library that's an alternative to EEX or Heeks. It's called Temple. And so I'd love to learn more about that, like why it was created, what problems you're solving, and and what you enjoy about it. But then also you're involved with the Elixir Wallaby project. So I'd love to learn more about the Wallaby and how that's a testing tool. I don't know that everyone's even aware that it's available as an alternative and an option for helping to test our systems. But before we get into all that, I'd love to learn a little bit more about you. Like, where do you live and what kind of work are you doing? Yeah, well, thanks for having me again. Yeah, my name's uh, Mitchell Hanberg. I go by Mitch. 
My wife and I live in Indianapolis, uh, Indiana, in the U.S. I've got two cats and a, a new puppy. Actually, in the last month, recently started a new job at uh, SimpleBet. I think you've had uh, some SimpleBet folks on before in the past. Yeah, Dave Lucia has been on and talked about what you guys are doing over there. Before that, I had been at a place called Stored for a year. Did a lot of kind of more mentorship, like Elixir, like scaling people up sort of thing. I had a good time doing that. And then prior to that, I was at Bleacher Report, well-known Elixir, Elixir company. I actually started there like two weeks before the pandemic started. So in like February of 2020. And then because everyone is like, oh, you work remote. And it's like, well, I work remote on purpose. And then the pandemic happened. <laughs> that was really my, uh, that's when I went pro with Elixir, as you might say. <laughs> Prior to that, I had uh, been working at a company in Indianapolis called SEP, just like a consulting company, did a wide range of things, Rails, C Sharp, Node, React, kind of all of it. But yeah, so currently at SimpleBet, SimpleBet, you know, we uh, facilitating kind of real-time betting markets. If you want to hear more about it, I'm kind of throw you just towards uh, listening to Dave's episode of the podcast. I've only been there for about three weeks, so um, don't have don't have the whole the whole pitch memorized yet. You mentioned that you'd worked at a consultancy and worked with a number of different languages, like C Sharp and Node and Ruby. And so I'm curious, you went from there to say, I have exposure to a lot of these languages, but I really want to focus and go deeper on Elixir because you went to a full time Elixir job. So I'd love to hear about what drew you to that and in, in that direction. At SEP, that was my first job out of college. And honestly, going into my first job, like I had a great time at college, but I hated school, right? So coming into my first job, I was afraid. I was like, am I even going to like working? Like I hated school. I hated projects. Like am I going to like this? As you can probably tell, I, I liked it. <laughs> but um, there was a very, very big sort of professional development culture at SEP. And I really kind of got really into it. And yeah, so I was learning Elixir a little bit, and one of my clients, they were actually a more local Indianapolis client, and um, one of my coworkers was sort of friends with some of the developers there, and they were pretty senior senior people, and so I kind of like, you know, looked up to them, and one of them literally just mentioned the word Elixir one time as something that he was sort of interested in. So I kind of was like, well, I think he's pretty smart, so I'll just... I'm trying to, you know, diversify and learn about new things. So I'll just I'll just look into it. So then, you know, one thing led to another and I had just done a few little side projects and I wrote a little internal app at work in Elixir and and at the time I was working with Wallaby and stuff and I was spending so much time thinking and writing and like uh, learning about Elixir that I just kind of decided I needed to either pull back or kind of just go all the way into it and get a get a job so <laughs> you, you saw the mind creep coming the the thing that says like <laughs> this is going to ruin me i have to pull away before it consumes me so then i had um one of my local elixir friends i think you've, you've probably heard of him eric ostrich kind of talk with him and some other people and they kind of caught wind that i was you know wanting to you know get a job doing elixir so then one thing led to another and then i started bleacher report been working in elixir ever since and don't have any Plans on stopping. And in case folks don't know, Eric Ostridge, he is a prolific open source developer. I think he's working on Ino right now. He works at Smart Logic, I believe, and was part of that part the their podcast there. So if you want to learn more about him, go check out their podcast. But uh, yeah, neat fella, cool. Well, I think that's a good jumping off point to start talking about Temple. 
you've been in the electric space for some time now, and just, if we're just following your story. And then at some point you say, you know, I want to see another templating library option <laughs> for Elixir. Because honestly, it's like, you know, the default is what comes with Phoenix, which is, you know, EEX or live templates, L-E-E-X or Heeks templates. You know, so we have all these funny little versions of it, but it's all very similar, very, very much the same thing. And Temple's very different. So I'm curious to hear about that. When I just, just looking at it, like if you, dear listener, you're hearing this and you're like, well, what, what does that even look like? So when I first looked at it, it kind of reminded me of something I seen in in Ruby years ago, which was Haml. So it's a, a very different way of structuring and defining your DOM nodes in an HTML template. So I'd love to get some background as to where this came from and what was your inspiration? Why'd you do it? When I first started working on Temple, I was still at a consulting company. So this is pre, you know, my pro Elixir days. And you know, I was just kind of consuming all the Elixir books and trying to learn about stuff. So I wanted to learn about, you know, writing macros and metaprogramming in Elixir. So I got Chris McCord's Pragmatic Programmers Express book on, on metaprogramming and macros. And when you're learning about writing DSLs and macros, the canonical sort of example is kind of writing an HTML DSL. So when you, when you write like div and span, it, you know, gets emitted into, into the, the markup there. Really, it was mostly a way to learn how macros work and also get experience like publishing something to Hex. So that that's kind of a, what was the starting point. And you, you kind of mentioned uh, it looks similar to uh, Haml. So there are several things with uh, Haml and then there's Slim templates. And those are sort of kind of like universal templating languages. Like you can use them in Ruby, Node, like, like any any language, it's it's kind of just like a, at least the way that they work in Elixir is you you know you write your your Haml parser and then at least when I've done a couple source dives it really just kind of outputs normal EEX and then when you want to use it with Phoenix it just kind of hands that to the Phoenix template engine and it kind of just works like as as normal Temple is like so obviously that's still a like plain text markup language. It's it's more structured than EX because you can write EX with anything, right? Like it can be HTML, CSS, JavaScript, other Elixir projects, Haskell, whatever you want. But Haml is a little more structured and so is so is Temple, which is kind of one of the with the new Heeks, that, that's how I say it. Templates. Uh, that I think that was one of the big selling points is that it kind of validates your HTML. Like if it can't compile it into the right thing, then it, it kind of raises. So with Temple, it kind of has that just inherently. And it's it's a little more similar to, for your Ruby example, there's a, a library called Markaby in Ruby. And that kind of has the same DSL and that looks like you're just writing Ruby. With, Elix- with Temple, it looks like you're writing Elixir, but then it ends up outputting, you know, this HTML document. And I was first really inspired by, so there's the Lucky Web Framework for Crystal, which is, it's another one of those LLVM backend compiled languages, kind of looks really similar to Ruby. So there's this web framework called Lucky. The way all of its templates work is with this HTML sort of DSL. So a lot of the things that I'm about to say are, I think, really alleviated just with the, the progression of a lot of the tooling, whether it's editor tooling, CLI tooling. But one of the things that I really didn't like about writing EX at the time was 
my Vim editor support was like not that great. So the indenting was like not good. Highlighting was often kind of subpar. And it was just like, you know, in my opinion, HTML is just kind of a pain to to format and indent on its own. So it was like, well, if I just write my templates in Elixir, then I can just use the Elixir formatter. Oh, and if it's also just an Elixir, because at the time I had also been getting the Elixir language server kind of hooked up in, in Vim, it's like, well, at least at the time, the auto-completions and stuff didn't really seem to work in the HTML templates. But if I'm just writing it in Elixir, then it works, and GoToDefinition works, and all this kind of stuff works. Um, I think a lot of that with the recent advances has has gotten a lot better. Because like, there's, like the, there's like a Surface formatter and a Hex formatter and EX formatter. So that argument is kind of uh, not, not as powerful anymore. But at the time, it was um, definitely meant a lot to me, especially with just like how... How quickly you can you know write things because I'm I'm often distracted by the formatting and stuff. I'd write I'd like to just you know hit a couple characters on my keyboard and just have it all all get formatted. So that was kind of the 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 genesis of the libraries. I just wanted to learn more about macros and kind of get a more fluid experience with the editor tooling and everything. With then with um just plain ex. So to rephrase some of what I heard you say, I think is instead of like creating a parser of HTML and all that kind of stuff, you're kind of just just writing the syntax tree of HTML directly with Elixir, with your your macros, right? So like the head HTML, you know, tag. And then inside of it, you've got the meta, you've got the link, you know, and so you head, do, and then all the nested things are children of that tag. And, and you're just writing the syntax tree of, of HTML at this point. Yep, exactly. Yeah, ver- versus Heeks, where you're you are literally writing HTML, a modified version of HTML, and so it has to go and parse the HTML and understand it and all that kind of. So there's a lot more steps involved to making sure that that's that's accurate and correct and all that kind of stuff. And yeah, lo- longer longer tail of work to make that look right, work right, format right. And HTML can be ugly, right? Just like just like the the support for like I can have an i tag that we often use for like sticking in icons and things like that, which is never actually intended for originally, but that's what we end up using it for. And I can just end with a slash bracket, or it can actually contain something. You know, have an ending tag. You know, just those the way you can end tags, or they can. I just imagine writing a parser for HTML and supporting many of the different years and variations of it would be very difficult. Here's some uh, useless trivia for you too, in case uh, you didn't know. The BR tag, you know, break. I I call it break. I think it's break. The BR tag. Does it or does it not end with a slash? I think it supports both. I always do it with a slash, but I don't think it needs it. Bitch, what do you think? (laughs) Uh, I honestly couldn't tell you. (laughs) (laughs) I I think it has no slash. The days of React ruined me because everything like that ends with a slash in my brain now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And I guess it gets confusing on what your what language you're actually writing here, JSX or not. So in the days of your XHTML was the standard, and that was like coupled with HTML4. And so you had these self closing tags, and BR was one of them. If it didn't have child content, you put that slash at the end. But HTML5, which is what the majority of the web is in nowadays, you don't need the slash. So tech there's a difference there but how much it matters is about as much night mode matters on your website which is not it doesn't doesn't matter please don't (laughs) anyway so that's pretty cool you've made html in elixir (laughs) essentially where do you use it where do do you find it you know beneficial to to use it 
Is there a way to use this with Phoenix directly? How would I use it? When would I decide to use it? Yeah, so if you wanted to use it, there are several different kind of like layers of of ways. The implementation details has really evolved over time. So with it being a macro, you kind of need uh, your surrounding macro. So you'd say like HTML, do, and then everything inside it kind of has that context of being in a temple sort of template. The way it would work is it just would create a buffer just in, in like an agent. And then as more tags were sort of evaluated, it would, you know, prepend onto that buffer, just the, the HTML. And then it ends up just becoming one, you know, ginormous batch of, of Elixir that all the actual HTML parts are something like buffer dot put and then a string of like less than sign div like space and then, you know, end string and then some Elixir and then and yada yada. And, and that's kind of how it would work. Nowadays, the output target is um, just EEX. So it, it outputs an EEX string. So the way you'd use it, like at the most basic level is, I mean, you install the, the library and everything and say require temple. And then you'd say like temple.compile do. And then inside it, you could have all of your, your temple. And then that's going to return a EEX string. So then you'd take that and then you would shove it into the like, EEX dot parse string function from the Elixir standard library. And then that would, you know, replace all of the, they're not module attributes, but the assigns that uses that kind of syntax. It would do all the replacement and stuff. And that just, you know, it is, is reusing the stuff that's built into the standard lib by outputting just EEX. Another layer on top of that is if you wanted to use it as your like Phoenix templating engine, Phoenix has a couple of like behaviors that you just need to like implement and then and then you can just kind of add it in as one of the template engines and then that does a couple things. It could when your views are compiling, you know, it'll know to look for the corresponding template like in your templates directory and um, the way temple works there is that it just uses a .ex extension. Like it could be anything really, but so your editor can just syntax highlight it correctly but so it'll know to look in there for those or if you're doing live view it'll know to do like the co-located templates but the way i've been kind of like working on it is i have my own little side project called uh, well i call it the bifrost but it's just kind of like a little personal app it's got like a tracking concept you know tracking my weight or exercises workouts got a url shortener it can be whatever right but it's just kind of a playground so i think live view I can't remember when it was announced, but it's like Temple itself is only like a couple months old or younger than LiveView. But so as soon as LiveView was like announced, I had like a lot of people opening issues like, can this work with LiveView? Can this work with LiveView? And my first reaction was like, I mean, duh, yeah. <laughs> and then then I realized that oh, it da- didn't actually work with LiveView at all because <laughs> because LiveView uses their like LiveView rendered struct as the thing that you know gets compiled and and to do all their fancy stuff. That is what drove the change from emitting plain like strings to doing the EX string, because a live EX and EX, as far as I can tell, the syntax is all exactly the same. It's just about how, you know, live view would parse it and stuff. And my little personal app, um, that's kind of what, yeah, my proving ground for, you know, getting out bugs and trying things out. And kind of the way that I use it is, and this was kind of like, you know, people say live view is kind of like, has a react-ish 
programming model sort of thing with like in React, you have your your component and it's got kind of a lot of your behavior and your JSX, your your template in the same file. People do the same thing in, in LiveView. So in that app, it's not part of Temple Core, I guess you would say, but I've got a little macro so that in my live views, I can just say render, do, and then inside that, it's just all temple. And then it just kind of all, you know, formatted all as one file. It just kind of works. And that's why that's how I typically use it. Yeah, so when Heeks kind of came out, I got a lot of questions of, like, does this work with Heeks? Like, can Heeks has these functional components now? Can you use it with, like, Heeks components? And my response to that is, like, Temple and Heeks are kind of on the same level of things. Like, they're doing sort of the same thing. So, like, you wouldn't write, like, a Heeks component in Temple. Temple has its own components. You'd write a Temple component. Like, I know it's tightly coupled to LiveView and everything, but to me, Heeks is more analogous to, in Laravel, the PHP framework, they have their kind of, you know, EEX is called Blade. They have a concept of Blade components, and Blade itself and Blade components are kind of more analogous than... Well, I guess you'd say it is analogous with Temple too, but it's like you don't use Heeks and Temple. The only reason why Live EX like mattered is because it's got all this special stuff. It can't just be like an HTML string, right? So I heard a lot about how it works, and may- maybe the the last thing uh, you know we can talk about for Temple, and we can transition over to Wallaby is why 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 would I use Temple? You know, like are there are are there some benefits, or is it purely like pre- preference of you know, use of writing more Elixir than I am, you know, HTML and, and handlebars, you know, what, what, what does, what does Temple do for the average Elixir developer? Why, why would they look at it? Yeah. So I think in the past, what I would say is, because one of the features of Temple is that there's this concept of, of components, right? When I had first written the components in live view, at least there was only like the live component. There wasn't like a function component. And you couldn't use that, obviously, if you're using normal EEX or if you're just writing a plug server or or whatever you were doing. So to me, the advantage was you can have components and componentize. You don't have to use partials anymore. Nowadays, things like Surface exists. That really brought the components to, I think, the, the mainstream of the live view community and really popularized it and then kind of, you know, drove up what is now Heeks. So nowadays, I think... It's mostly just preference. In the past, there was like some some advantages. I do have some ideas for the future that I think could you know be uh, things that the other other libraries don't really have, but they don't exist as of now. So, what what are some of the ideas? I'm curious. Currently, what I'm working on is kind of you know rewriting the engine again, and the idea is kind of to decouple like the output format from kind of the core of what Temple is and. In order to do that, that would enable, you know, I just want to output an HTML string, like no EEX, nothing. It can just be an HTML renderer. There could be an EEX renderer, a live EEX renderer. Each parser or renderer can be a little more uh, targeted in what it's trying to do and produce, you know, a better result. But then also I have kind of ideas around, kind of similar to how, uh, like with React, you know, there's, there's React Native, and that that kind of works in, you know, Android and iOS stuff. And then there's also React CLI projects. So you can write these CLI tools using React components and allow you to, you know, make really rich, colorful, 
interactive command line applications. So that's another thing that I'm sort of kind of interested in is is making it so you can do stuff like that. Another thing, this doesn't really even have anything to do with Temple itself, but so with the Elixir LSP, like it gets a lot of its smartness from this library called Elixir Sense. And Elixir Sense has this concept of plugins. And you've probably noticed like if you're if you're using it when you're writing like an ecto schema, it'll add like really cool auto completion for your like has many and belongs to and that kind of stuff. So one thing I'd like to do is write an Elixir Sense plugin, which is something that you you just have your library sort of provide and it kind of just like does like a ensure like if Elixir Sense is present, then you know, load this module. But that would allow for kind of good auto-completion of like all the different types of tags that exist, or you can do auto-completion on, you know, an input element supports a certain number of attributes. So when you when you're writing that, it could give you, you know, auto-completion on like like, well, there's the type attribute and class and ID, and I'm sure there's some other ones that I don't even I don't even know. And and that's like the good part about having IDE type features is kind of the discoverability. Like like having great docs is is great too, but if you can explore an API just like in your editor, that's that takes it to a whole other level. It's like the one thing that I liked about C sharp is just with Visual Studio, you you can you know the auto completion kind of helps you learn how to do it. Those are two really interesting things that you can expand upon that. Yeah, like it, it, by decoupling from HTML so much, you can explore other areas like CLIs, like you mentioned. Still in the realm of HTML, though, if like accessibility tags are often forgot. And so like you can add that kind of LSP smartness to like warn that this uh, tag isn't, you know, is is not visible or something like that. You know, it should have a description on it or something along those lines. That could be really cool. It's one of the really cool things I noticed about Surface when it first came out was it can like it gives you like like accurate like line and column like compiler warnings on like stuff in your templates and and whatnot. And a lot of that is currently busted in temple just because of it currently produces this EX string and it kind of loses all concept of where the lines and columns are. So in my editor I'll just get, you know, a red line that's like five lines above where the actual problem is and it's it's really confusing <laughs> but yeah adding those compiler warnings like oh you you put the class attribute on twice like you probably don't want to do that and that kind of stuff would definitely be a major enhancement while we still have you i wanted to be able to talk about your work on the wallaby project i remember first learning about this when i came to the elixir ecosystem it, it i think it's been there for a long time i know you weren't the creator of it so i'd love to hear about what the project is, what it's doing, and how your involvement came to be. I think you're now the maintainer of that. Is that right? Um, yeah, so Wallaby is a sort of, I mean, there are a lot of different terms for it, system test, feature test, acceptance test, but Wallaby is the term feature. But So it's a feature testing library for Elixir. So basically at its core, what it does is it facilitates spinning up a headless browser and then starting up your app and then giving you the functions and and stuff to to sort of drive that browser to use your app as a user would and that allow you to query for things on the page and make assertions about it so it's in the whole ecosystem you've probably familiar with like uh, selenium and if you're coming from like ruby and rails there's capybara in elixir there's actually two there's hound and wallaby they have different sort of styles on how the functions go wallaby is more of like a 
like token based like piping approach whereas hound is a little more imperative i think but yeah so as you said i didn't i didn't start wallaby but it was sort of my first break i guess into the greater elix- elixir sort of ecosystem so wallaby was started i have to look back in the commit history but a long time ago at a consultancy called carbon 5 one of the creators name was chris keithley and I'm not sure on the name of, I think there was someone else who who worked with him a lot on it. But so he was kind of the main, he was an author and maintainer for quite a while. But after he moved away from consulting and wasn't working on web apps and, and as much, he was sort of looking for, you know, to hand off the reins to somebody. And there, there were a couple of maintainers. So he was kind of, you know, there were a couple other maintainers as well. During the time I was trying to get involved in the Elixir open source ecosystem, saw Wallaby, there were some issues that looked really easy to sort of fix. And I, you know, fixed a couple issues and then uh, fixed, I think, a little kind of like a bigger one. And then Chris approached me and asked if I wanted to, you know, have like uh, right access, I guess, to the repo and be able to help with issues and and merge pull requests and, and write features and stuff. So he kind of handed it off to me and that really was kind of a boon just for my professional career because it, it kind of, you know, gave me a lot more experience with Elixir, and I also became friends with Chris, and he really was the, he worked at Bleacher Report at the time, and he helped me get get the job at Bleacher Report, and uh, I really owe him a lot just for my my career and, you know, getting to work on Wallaby, so I guess I'll use this time to say thank you, Chris. Uh, really, really appreciate it. And Wallaby is used, you know, for driving your browser as your user would and allows you to make assertions and and whatnot about what's happening on the page. And it's all fully hooked up with like the Ecto sort of test sandbox. So you get transactional tests, which is kind of tricky because normally when you're writing just a basic unit test, the same Elixir code, like the same process basically that is adding stuff to the database, like for fixtures and stuff, and then, you know, creating a new one is also the same thing running the test. So it all just works. And when the test PID dies, then the sandbox goes, oh, I can roll back that transaction. But with the way Wallaby works is that, you know, your your endpoint, your Phoenix app or your plug app, or it can be whatever, it can be google.com, but that gets started up in a different process from your tests. So Ecto has this sandbox feature that makes it really easy for kind of coordinating and Wallaby kind of makes that automatic. So you get these fully transactional tests. You can have concurrent users using, like you can start up two browsing sessions and have two users talking in a chat application at the same time and see what it's like for, for that. So I just want to clarify that. So like you're saying, is that opening up two instances of the Selenium web driver? Yeah, so this is where you get kind of into the nitty gritty of what makes kind of maintaining something like Wallaby a little tedious and kind of error prone and set. So classically, there's this tool called Selenium, which is a web driver. I mean, it's this the big Java tool. But each browser has its own actual web driver that is used for the bridge. It kind of makes its own little server. And then you make requests to the server. And then it moves stuff around on the page, right? So the best way to use Wallaby is just to use Chrome driver directly. That allows you to use it with Chrome. Whenever you start up a new test, you can do it headless so there's, you don't see any GUI, or you can do it in headed. It's not really a word, but, and you can watch it move and everything. So, like, if you were to, every time you boot up a new Wallaby session, 
that starts a new Chrome driver session, which pulls up another instance of Google Chrome. So in your in your like dock, if you're on a Mac, you'll see like two Chromes pop up. If you were not in headless mode, you'd see two actual windows pop up and you'd see them independently, like adding stuff to the page and everything. I just think that sounds really fun as a way of testing multi-user live view stuff, you know, because that's otherwise, you know, the way the way we test that as well, we're, we're testing the, the code at like a unit test level or something like that. But like when you're dealing with multiple users and that you type something and PubSub is working and it's showing up over here in this other thing, the easiest thing I think is to fall back to manual testing. With live view, the way I understand it is they kind of have their own built-in test uh, utilities that allow you to test a lot of the dynamic nature of live view, but it kind of does it all on the Elixir side because just sending back, you know, HTML and, and whatnot, so it can kind of like piece together what's happening. But the main difference is that LiveView has a lot of JavaScript, right? So if you actually want to be testing your app as a user would, you need that JavaScript to be loaded and running. So that's that's a thing that, because these, these style of tests typically are like slow. And my first project at my first job, C-sharp project, they were broken up into different Jenkins pipelines, but these these Selenium-powered system tests would take, you know, hours and hours. And typically they can get a little slow, So, which is why some people might want to use the built-in live view testing utilities. But if you actually want it to run with the JavaScript and see as a user would see it, then using something like Wallaby or Hound is, is kind of what you want to do. I think that makes sense. I've worked on those projects too, where the CI job for running all the tests, you know, even if it's farmed off across multiple machines, it takes too long, right? For what we're accustomed to with fast feedback and being able to to iterate. But I think there's a lot of value in having those, just maybe a few tests that are like the, the smokescreen style test of just going all the way through the whole stack to do the core function of this thing to make sure it still works. Because like you bring up this point about JavaScript, right? So yeah, we don't necessarily say that, yeah, we're testing live use JavaScript, but what if we have hooks? What if we have some custom stuff going on in our page and we want to just have something that just exercises all of it all the way through? Does it load up? Does it work? Okay, now I can go on and, and I can deploy with more confidence that the main purpose of this application works. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So for Wallaby in particular, if you want to use Chrome, you would just use the Chrome driver, uh, driver, the Wallaby driver for the Chrome driver directly. But if you want to do other browsers, because not every web driver can be used in isolation. So if you want to use Firefox, use Selenium and then Gecko driver. And then if you want to do Safari, it's called Safari driver and you can use Selenium. And then some people don't like this, but with, you know, Edge and, Vivaldi and all these things being based on Chrome, you can just use Chrome driver to talk to all of them. But so on your CI system, you theoretically could run your whole test suite on all of the browsers, like in parallel and see which ones work and which ones don't work. I typically think it's okay just testing in Chrome or maybe just in Firefox. But if you if your users are like all using Safari, then it's kind of the way to go. So Mitch, with the Wallaby project, it sounds like it's still very popular. A lot of people are using it. It's a part of a lot of many projects. Are you looking for any help or contribution from people to get involved in any way? One of the biggest ways to get involved and help out with Wallaby is we use the new GitHub discussions sort of platform for 
answering and asking questions. So getting on there and asking any kind of questions that you might have so that the advantage that that has is that it's, you know, indexed by Google. And when you just ask it in the Elixir Slack, in two days, it's all going to be gone. So um, the biggest things you can do is when you do have a question, ask it there. And then also more people are answering more questions than the advantages to that is that it kind of spreads the load on me and allows way more questions to get asked and answered. And the number of issues is getting slower and slower, but, you know, getting more feedback from people on issues or even if you see an issue. And a really helpful thing is to sort of try and reproduce it. So, like, if you see an issue where the the author is not provided a, a, a repo that has a, a reproduction of the of the problem, that'd be a great way to to just learn more and just try and create a reproducible thing. Because the thing with the web browsers and everything is that it's like really brittle. So just having a description of the problem and not seeing the test code and stuff is is uh, kind of makes debugging it like pretty hard. So those are the the two ways I think one can can help out with Wallaby sort of the most. It's been years since I've been using a Selenium driver, mainly those with the, a Rails project that I had. But I just know even from way back then, it's probably even better now, but just how brittle some of those were, how sometimes you, you would just fail and you wouldn't really know why and you'd rerun it and it would work. Is that still a situation? Because you know, you're dealing with these, integrated with these moving projects. They're actively changing and all the time and you have no control over them, like that being like Safari, Chrome and Firefox. Yeah, I would say if you're using the Selenium driver, for example, just the test suite for like running all the tests in Chrome driver takes like two and a half minutes, whereas Selenium takes like 12 minutes, like on, on GitHub CI. So the slower the tests are and the longer they're running, the more prone to sort of being brittle and errors that they have. But in my experience, just using Chrome driver by itself, the brittleness is like gone way, way down. And one of the things that I do want to work on I'm in the future because I'm getting more more time to work on open source uh, very recently. So kind of one of the things I want to do in the this, this summer when I'm not, you know, having fun at the beach and everything is I think there are a couple libraries to do this already. So I could just use one of those. But instead of using the web driver, use the Chrome DevTools protocol, which kind of uses WebSockets and it's like much faster. So that's what Puppeteer uses. There's a new project from Microsoft in the original Puppeteer authors called Playwright. Those are all Node.js, JavaScript things, but they use this Chrome DevTools protocol to move the browser. And I've tinkered with it a little bit, and it seems to be a little bit faster and, I think, less brittle. And luckily, Firefox has implemented a lot of it, and I think even Safari implemented some of it. So my ideal version of all that is Wallaby would be able to download all the browsers for you and use this DevTools protocol and just do it all without any setup. Because one of the biggest problems is people say, it's not working, it's not working. And I go, well, is your Chrome version the same as your Chrome driver version? And they go, no. (laughs) (laughs) And then they update it and it works. Yeah, I've experienced that in my own CI pipeline. Well, Mitch, thank you for coming on. And the story behind Temple, the idea of, you know, wanting to find joy in the templates we spend so much time doing web development, spend time in our templates on the personal mission to make it more enjoyable and something that you find pleasure in. So 
I think that's cool. And if people want to check out your Tableau static site generator, that's cool too. I am glad we were able to talk about Wallaby because I think it's something that people should be aware of that it is available as and, and Hound as well as these testing tools that can help us test fully outside in all the way through the stack, all the way through the JavaScript and the browser interactions to make sure something is actually working and can be automated. So I think that's very cool. And so thank you for coming on and talking with us. Is there anything else you want to mention before we part? I think that's it. Uh, just thanks a lot for uh, having me on. I really appreciate it. Unfortunately, that's all the time we have for today. Thank you for listening. We hope you'll join us next time on Thinking Elixir.